Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. During the four Sundays of Advent this year, I want us to focus our attention on what is perhaps the most glorious prophecy of Jesus coming into the world. I'm talking about the first half of Isaiah 9. Some of the verses in the passage are very familiar to us. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We call a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. We all know that. But the first five verses of that chapter, though also part of the same prophecy of Jesus coming, are not so well known to us. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. I love this passage, and we've looked at this in years past. And every year I haul this out, and I say, maybe this year we'll talk about Isaiah 9. And I say, no, we did that just not so long ago. And... Um, now I realize it's 11 years since we talked about Isaiah 9. So now I get to do the Isaiah 9 again. And I love this passage. I absolutely love this passage. So let me read it. Isaiah 9, we're going to talk about verses 1 to 5, but I'm going to read down into verse 6. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They, receive, they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. So we'll stop there. I'd just like to suggest two great truths that we learn from this, these first five verses. And the first is this. God cares about the nobodies. God cares about the nobodies. You say, that sounds familiar to me. It hadn't been 11 years since I've heard that. No, I've actually used that as a main point in some other sermon somewhere I know. And without apology, for this truth is crucial to our understanding of Jesus coming, that God cares about the nobodies. Let me explain why we, how we get that here. This whole prophecy comes, across, uh, comes upon the backdrop against the backdrop of Isaiah 7 and 8. In those chapters, Isaiah foretold terrible times. In those chapters, the Lord promised judgment against Israel. The massive Assyrian army would roll down from the north like a flood out of control, bringing the worst kind of destruction. And not, sur not surprising, the people were left in gloom and despair at that news. So verse 1 directs this prophecy to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, also called Galilee of the Gentiles. Those would be the areas hit the hardest by, uh, uh, by the Assyrians, for they were the northernmost remote regions of Israel. Galilee was up in the back country, it was out in the sticks as far as people down in Jerusalem were concerned. They were poor peasants over there who didn't count much for much in the eyes of, of, of many in Israel. And because these 
people up north were frontier territory and frontier territories. When the Assyrians swept down uh, to plunder Israel, they would be attacked first. And because the population there was in constant contact with the Gentiles, their northern neighbors, these people tended to also be the most corrupt in Israel. So the area was called Galilee of the Gentiles. You say it with a certain sneer. And because these people were the most compromised, then they would presumably be uh, condemned the most when the judgment of God came. They would be utterly crushed by the Assyrians whom God used to punish Israel. We might say there is not a prayer of a chance for these people. Jerusalem and Judah might have some hope of survival, but not these poor nobodies uh, 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 up in Galilee. But then who cared about them anyway? That's the amazing thing about this promise of Messiah's coming. It was not promised to the chief priest and the teachers of the law down in Jerusalem. It was not promised to the prosperous elite of Judea. This prophecy was given to those poor, hopeless, downtrodden, backwoods, nobodies of Israel. The people who were the most hopeless, the people who were in the most distressing situation, whose darkness was the very thickest Those were the people who would be the first to see the light of God's salvation. For God cares about the nobodies. And that's exactly what happened. When the prophecy was fulfilled, we read that in Matthew 4. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Indeed, nearly all of Jesus' earthly ministry was among the poor people in the northern regions of Israel. Most of his disciples were Galileans. And even when Jesus went outside that geographical area, his ministry was still to the nobodies, just like he found up in Galilee. The sick, the broken, the demon-possessed, the outcast, the public sinners, because God cares about those nobodies. But not only did God remember the despised and rejected when Jesus came, it continued throughout the whole New Testament era. While the holy city of Jerusalem rejected Jesus, Ephesus over in Asia Minor, the center of every sort of, uh, of, 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 of worship of the heathen goddess Diana, became a center of evangelism, not Jerusalem. And Corinth, the center of every kind of perversion and hedonism and idolatry, became the home of a major congregation of Christ's church, not Athens, the cultural home, the seat of learning. And folks, it's still happening today for all the money and the education that the church has acquired. The greatest growth still takes place among the nobodies of the world. Common people, poor people, hurting people. And for all the smugness of Christians with white European roots, and I'm one of those. 
with our great theological heritage in the Reformation, most of the growth of the church in these days is not primarily white, but black or brown, not primarily North American, but Latin and African and Asian. And in spite of all the resources that we set on in churches in this country, nowadays less than half of Christian missionaries going out with the gospel are from this country. You see, God routinely does his work through the nobodies that he loves so much. Dear people, this truth should bring you hope. If you're burdened with your lowly status in the world, if you've been looked down on so often that you believe it yourself, if you feel despised and rejected, outcast and lonely, if you become convinced that because of your miserable failures, probably probably God himself is against you, then I want you to hear the good news of this text. God cares about you because he cares about the nobodies. When God announced the coming of his son Jesus to bring salvation to the world, he promised him to people like you and me, nobodies of the world, people whom Jesus picks out of the dumpsters of life to become his children. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things of the world, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Or as Jesus himself put it, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God cares about the nobodies. That's the first truth we need to learn. Then there's another truth unfolded for us here, which brings us to our second point. Jesus' birth promises glory. Jesus' birth promises glory to come. You may have noticed these days, lots of ads floating around, radio, television, internet, ads for wonderful and expensive gifts, clothes and jewelry and sound equipment and new computers and, and gadgets. We're easily captured by the promise of some glorious new thing. If only I could get that for Christmas. Maybe I'll get it for myself for Christmas. Oh, but in more sensible moments, we know from experience that those things, too, get old and broken. Even the most dazzling things lose their luster. But the, real, but the really perfect gift is promised here in this chapter. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This gift, the coming of Jesus, is bigger and better than anything we ever imagined. This gift we enjoy already right now, but also its full dimension is not yet comprehended. And when we look for a word to describe all that Jesus' coming will mean for the world, the word has to be glory. Jesus' birth promises glory to come. 
So our text gives us three pictures. This is the harder part of the text here. Gives us three pictures of the glory which is promised. The first is that the darkness will turn to glorious light. We see that in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. We commonly use darkness and light as metaphors. And so this in the scriptures. Darkness represents the absence of truth, the absence of hope, the absence of goodness. This darkness described in verse 2 is so total that the NIV actually translates it living in the land of the shadow of death. But here God promises a day of glorious light when this child is born. Then there will be nothing but truth and goodness. Then the full light of the presence of God will fill the world, dispelling ignorance and hopelessness and depravity, dispelling every kind of darkness. Now, we don't see that all yet, do we? In fact, sometimes it seems like we will walk forever in the, in the blackness of light, of night. But Isaiah tells us that this glorious light will begin to shine when Jesus is born. And sure enough, Jesus came proclaiming, I am the light of the world, enlightening us, giving us hope, removing the darkness from us, and making us the children of light so that we already have a taste of the certainty of glory to come. For Jesus' birth promises glorious restoration, the appearance of the light of life to dispel the darkness of sin and death. That's the first one. Then the verse 3 describes the glory another way. The gloom will be replaced with joy. Look again at verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. We all long for joy. In fact, behind all the lists of gifts that we would like to receive, really, this is the secret longing of our hearts, just to know real lasting joy. Well, here God promises that kind of glory, the glory of unlimited, unending joy. He says it'll be like national prosperity. Like when the country is growing and strong and the joy of fireworks on the 4th of July and the pride of being part of a wonderful land. He goes on and says, it'll be like the joy of harvest when the, the hard work is done and the crops are in the barn and, and, and there's a sense of prosperity and security and it's time to celebrate. It will be like the joy of victory when the long battle is over, when, when peace and prosperity are renewed. And there's a time for joyful celebration, such as the joy God promises his people. One day he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. Indeed, the Spirit says, all the suffering we now know is not worth comparing with that glory. Oh, but we do not yet see such glorious joy all the time, do we? Everything is not right with the world. Our hearts are often broken. 
Suffering is the common lot of Christians in this fallen world. So we do not yet know all the glory of joy unbounded, but we do already know Jesus. He has come into the world to bring us salvation, and he guarantees the the glorious joy. He says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. James writes, count it all joy, even when you fall into all kinds of trials. In Romans 5, we read, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and character and hope. Jesus' birth promises to restore glorious joy, and we taste that already, though there's more to come. Finally, verses 4 to 5, we're given one more description of the glory to come. War and oppression will turn to glorious freedom and peace. Look at verse 4 and 5. For as the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Here God recalls the a glorious victory of Gideon who defeated the Midianites who were the oppressors of Israel. In those days, the Israelites hid in caves and watched helplessly as the Midianites came and burnt their crops and killed their livestock. But when they cried out to the Lord, he heard them and he raised up Gideon, who with his little band of 300 men, as after God had pared it down from thousands delivered God's people from the Midianites. But the Lord says here, that was only a foretaste of the glorious restoration to come. Deliverance from all enemies. No more oppression. No more injustice. No more bloodshed. No more terrorism. Only peace and freedom. And sure enough, Jesus comes and in Jesus we enjoy freedom and peace already. Romans 8 says the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And Jesus himself says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give it to you. Peace and freedom are already ours in Christ. But just as obviously glorious peace and freedom are, uh, continue to elude us. Every Christmas, I'm struck by the poignant truth of the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, wild and sweet. The, the, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Oh, and you only have to watch the news to hear the hateful mocking still. But folks, the birth of Jesus guarantees glorious freedom and glorious peace beyond the best we've seen so far. It will not come as we might have expected through skillful diplomacy or political compromise or military might. Oh, no. No, lasting glorious justice and peace and freedom is promised and will be realized only in the Son who was born on Christmas. Only through the government which is upon his shoulders. 
only through the kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus, the king of kings. So today I call you to Jesus. Not just a baby whose birth we'll soon celebrate. I call you to the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the only hope of the world. For he's like no other king. He actually cares about the nobodies. Those whose situation is desperate. Those who have nothing to give him in exchange. Those for whom there's no hope. He cares. And his birth promises glory, both now and forever. For he is the glorious light who dispels the darkness of sin. And he brings the unspeakable joy which displaces the gloom of judgment. And he is the glorious victor who has won for us peace and freedom forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we can only grasp a little bit of what you promise here for we're so blinded by the trouble of our day, the struggle that goes on. And yet when we think about it, we have to admit, Lord, you have caused us to taste the glory of Jesus coming already. So may we not be satisfied until we see you again and see the glorious restoration in all of its fullness. Thank you for these promises. Cause us to live in hope, we pray. To walk by faith in the midst of the struggle when it looks hopeless as this world uh, uh, measures things. But Lord, thank you that your, promise are ne- your promises are never hopeless. They're always certain. And so may we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You'll find your bulletin and there's an affirmation of faith. This is from Galatians chapter 4.